by moving, segueing into Jung's ideas. Um, uh, you, you, he was a near contemporary of Freud, a little younger than Freud, and um, he spent the first part of his life working um, in psychiatric hospital, uh, actually the psychiatric hospital where they first defined um, schizophrenia. Um, so, and he did that for about 10 years. So he, you know, he had a lot of time at the coalface with these things. Um, and when he was working out how to uh, relate to people um, in you know, very distressed states often, um, he started reading about Freud's work and felt Freud's work really could help him. Because one of the things which Jung was convinced of was that psychosis, say, is not just completely meaningless, but that it is trying to communicate something, it is trying to say something. And if only you can work out what that might be, it might help alleviate suffering. And so he felt that what Freud was onto about early experience or about mechanisms like projection and so on might help him to do that. And they had a few years where they uh, met and corresponded and, um, and uh, it seemed that all was going well. Um, but then they split. They, they had uh, differences of opinion about things. And um, one key area was this area of um, is um, the psyche, uh, as it were, its own self-generating uh, part of life? Or can the human psyche connect to a wider inner life? And in fact, as it were, our intelligence, you might say, is just an echo of a wider, a broader intelligence. Um, or um, in the case of imagination, that our imaginations can, at least on occasions, if properly discerned, connect with something that exists objectively as well as just subjectively. Um, Jung started talking about the objective psyche as well as the subjective psyche, the psychoid, as he sometimes puts it. So they split. Um, and it was pretty acrimonious and, and tricky. You can read about it, or there's that film, uh, what's the film about Freud and Jung and Sabine Spielrein? A difficult dangerous something? Method. Def dangerous yeah. method, thank yeah. you very much, yeah. Um, anyway, so that's quite often talked about, so it's kind of fascinating, because you, you have to think about the ideas that they were arguing over. Um, but he has some distinctive ideas of his own, so let me just run through those, and then we'll um, think about them um, more interactively too. Um, one is this notion of the collective unconscious. And he got this from um, his time in the, um, in the hospital in Switzerland um, because he realized that um, some of the fantasies that uh, people were having um, in psychotic states particularly, um, they weren't just, um, they seemed to be unconnected to um, anything that they might have experienced um, in their actual life. But because Freud was an avid reader of medieval manuscripts, um, he felt that they were the same fantasies that, say, writers in the 15th or 16th century had. Um, so, for example, he would look in illuminated manuscripts, see drawings, and then he would feel that one of his patients was describing in a dream, say, almost exactly the same thing. So it's a coincidence. Now, if this just happened once or twice, you might say it's just a coincidence, but he felt he would, could see this regularly um, and built up uh, records of... Of it. And so he began to get this sense that we're not just isolated psyches, um, but that um, part of what's going on in our inner life, at least, um, is shared with other human beings, and we inherit it. Um, he was very influenced by Darwin as well, and so he thought, you know, if Darwin is arguing that we've got five fingers, say, because fish had five bones in their fins, um, you know, so we're connected to the fish, and part of our um, sort of physical experience um, is not um, unrelated to the, the experience of earlier organisms 
Um, so too, why wouldn't that be the case for our psychic lives, that we would inherit um, aspects of our psychic life um, from those who come before as well? Um, so it's a kind of evolutionary idea too, um, as well as him feeling that he had empirical evidence for it. Quick question. I was, no, sorry, Jung. I must have uh, made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. No, Jung uh, t did these 10 years in the psyche. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. So that was one of the ways that he began to... There was this objective unconscious that, which we share in and, and is as part. He, he wanted to move as well beyond um, sexual instincts. He understood that Freud wasn't saying everything's just about sex. He understood about infantile sexuality and the body and it being a zone of pleasure and pain and so on. Um, he perfectly understood that. But he also felt that there might well be other um, elements um, that human beings uh, get caught up in in life. Um, and in particular, um, it wasn't, as it were, just the sort of bottom-up or back then into the present um, set of dynamics that we get caught up in, although they definitely exist. But there might also be something in the future that is sort of calling us towards um, the future as much as something from the past that is still entangled for us in the present. Um, and um, he wanted to, to work out how you can think about that um, uh, in terms of someone who comes to see you as well. Um, how, uh, as it were, there might be top-down influences on us as well as bottom-up, or not just the past impacting the present, but maybe the future um, impacts the present as well. And how can we think about that? Um, I, I mentioned this already, but he, he felt that, um, that we need to listen to madness um, because um, often what's called madness now might in a previous age, for example, have been called some kind of prophecy, um, or maybe part of what um, people who uh, feel overwhelmed um, in life now are suffering from is that we live in, they live in a time that can't really cope with what they're experiencing. Um, and um, so it's as much the society in which we're living um, as, as well as the individual's psyche um, that needs to be interrogated or understood um, you know, I think this is actually quite common in, in relatively humdrum ways, say, around depression. Um, you know, it's quite um, an artificial way to live, say, a nine-to-five existence Monday to Friday. Um, it's certainly um, it's coming out of maybe the corporation's inner life, but not necessarily your own inner life. Um, so in a lot of these ideas maybe, you know, make quite everyday sense too, as well as perhaps being a bit more esoteric or mystical as well. Um, uh, he changed therapeutic techniques as well. Um, he, partly because he wanted to try and bring a lot more into therapy. Um, so for example, um, you know, the standard um, psychoanalytic method inherited from Freud is that you lie on a couch. Um, that puts you into slightly different consciousness by lying on the couch. It helps you to regress a bit, as it were, because when you're a child, you sort of tend to lie down. Um, and then you're encouraged to free associate, just to sort of speak whatever comes into your mind. And the analyst listens on and um, maybe says something that maybe suggests a link um, or invites you just to feel a bit freer about what you're saying because we have defense mechanisms and we have super egos, as it were, that try and um, uh, stymie our complete free association. Well, for, well Jung thought that um, there can be use in that, um, but um, that maybe you need to listen to dreams much more, or maybe 
um, you need to um, go away and just live a bit uh, for a while, or maybe you need to have a religious experience. Um, one of the famous ways that this came about was um, the person who was to become the founder of AA came to see Jung um, because he was addicted to alcohol. And Jung said, look, I think you need to go and have a religious experience. Um, and so sort of sent him off, and he went and, to an evangelistic revival um, and felt a sort of power over, overwhelming him, um, which in time, there's a bit of a more complicated story than just this, but became the greater power that um, is at the heart of AA and other um, related approaches. Um, so, you know, Jung changed his therapeutic techniques. And, and another way in which Jung changed it was, again, quite humdrum, but he reckoned you could sit alongside a client, you know, not just, as it were, have the client lie on the couch um, and you as the therapist sitting behind their head. Um, uh, you could sit alongside them as well, um, which is, you know, I mean, it's sometimes interesting to lie on the couch, actually, but um, on the whole, um, people sit in chairs these days. Um, and then, um, because he trusted the imagination, he thought that we need to develop what he called active imagination techniques, which is the capacity to kind of go into uh, an imaginative state, whether it be by maybe recalling a dream and in a slightly sort of trance-like or hypnagogic state, um, bring the dream back to life and see what happens. You know, if that, I don't know, troll under the bridge that you dreamt um, actually started to speak to you, what might that troll say? Um, he, he, he felt very powerfully that images themselves have a kind of um, intelligence and that the longer you can stay with the image rather than, say, interpret it as that trolls your you know, bad experience of your brother or something, um, that rather crashes the image. And he wanted to sort of stay with the images he, because he had this great trust in the imagination um, and try and go with it. Um, so in a number of ways... Uh, he, he spit from Freud. So here's, here's some thoughts about dreams, um, developing what I've just been saying, I hope. Um, Freud had thought that dreams are actually ways of trying to stay asleep, um, slightly paradoxically, because, of course, the dreams you remember are the ones where you've woken up. Um, but he thought we're dreaming all through the night, and mostly we don't wake up. So that must mean that dreams are mostly successful. Um, and what he thought dreams are about are... Um, rehearsing anxieties which would otherwise wake you up, um, but in such a way that they don't disturb you. you know, so you kind of tell a story around the anxiety that keeps it in place, for example. But every so often that fails, and the anxiety, as it were, can't be contained within the story, and so you wake up having had a nightmare. Um, uh, or you get woken up for some other reason, and then you remember the dream. Um, so dreams are useful, Freud thought. He definitely thought dreams were useful because they tell you something about your unconscious life that otherwise is rather out of, um, uh, beyond, beyond your understanding. But nonetheless, dreams as a natural function are designed to keep you asleep. Whereas Jung thought that dreams actually are about this much bigger part of yourself. When the I, when the ego, when the day consciousness um, uh, goes, as it does when you go to sleep, um, so therefore you're living, you're in much more direct contact or conscious, well, you're, you're, you're then in contact wholly with um, the less conscious part of yourself and what you're dreaming and so on is going to be a reflection of that. Um, so he thought that you, dreams are um, not pathological, they're actually a communication from a part of you that you um, otherwise uh, might find hard to access. Um, so he thought they have a different function. Um, and he thought also that 
they often are about trying to redress a psychic imbalance. He, he was very um, influenced by the biological idea of homostasis, um, that an organism needs to be a kind of constant balancing act um, between you know, taking stuff up from the ground and um, letting it evaporate into the air or um, uh, breaking things down and building things up um, or um, you know, when it gets hot outside and uh, maintaining um, an ambient temperature inside. Um, he saw this happening all around him in the natural world and so thought, well, you know, why wouldn't our psyches be like that too? So he thought that often what can happen in dreams, the communication of a dream, can be about trying to resess, address an, an imbalance in waking life. Um, you know, so an example might be um, that you um, hate your boss, say, um, in waking life, and you just think they're an ogre and a completely disastrous and hopeless. And then one day you have a dream about your boss, and you suddenly realize that in the dream, the boss has got your face. You are, as it were, your boss in the dream. And the dream kind of leaves you feeling really uncomfortable because it gives you this vague intimation that maybe um, there's a bit of you that's quite like your boss or something like that. And, but this is, would be the communication of the dream that part of the reason why the boss has got so under your skin and is so agitating you is because they're connecting with a part of yourself that you don't like, um, the bit that he was famously to call the shadow. Um, uh, just because it's in shadows, you'd rather not know it was there. Um, so dreams can be very helpful for addressing these balances. Um, your boss may be awful too. Um, it's not saying they're not, but nonetheless, uh, it's, it's kind of bugging you because it's getting a part of, it's hooked into a part of yourself. Um, very interesting, he thought, you know, we're dreaming all the time. Um, and part of what it is to be awake is just to have kind of lost consciousness with that. Um, but um, in maybe psychotic breakdown or madness of some kind, the boundary between dreaming and reality um, becomes too porous. Um, so we can't actually find our way through waking, the waking world. Um, and, um, you know, so we can walk into a room and feel the room um, is going to consume us or um, people are going to attack us or whatever it might mean, the kind of thing which you might experience in a dream. Um, you can't separate out from everyday waking life. Um, enlightenment, he thought, is when you're aware of all these different levels of conscious or unconscious reality, but can navigate your way through them um, successfully. Um, so, you know, you know um, about... Um, unconscious life is not unconscious to you anymore. You're aware of it, um, but um, you're also able to exist in this kind of complete or fullest reality. And he thought that that's why... There are stories associated with enlightenment, such as um, the enlightened person is said to be able to remember their past lives, for example. What he thought that might mean is that um, the enlightened person is aware of all the influences that have ever had a bearing upon their present moment um, and can tolerate them, can live with them, can speak about them, can keep a mind about them. Um, he, he wondered whether that was another way of thinking about this old story that enlightened people are aware of all their past lives as, as one example of that. Um, he thought the psyche is dynamic and tries to heal itself. Um, again, um, a slightly different position in relation to psychotherapeutic work um, that you as a psychotherapist, rather than, say, seeing yourself as a parent that's got to um, be the facilitating environment to help the developmental stages um, unfold where previously they got hindered, that's one way of thinking about your task as a therapist. Um, and a, a Jungian, a more strictly Jungian approach might be to think about how 
um, you're there um, to enable the psyche to redress its own balances. Um, so, for example, by paying attention to dreams, by paying attention to fantasies, not necessarily having to go back and try and understand the developmental history so much. Um, it's a sort of a bit of a nuance, but nonetheless, I mean, it would be a difference in the way that you work. Um, Jung, as it were, felt that the psyche is already trying to do that, and your job is to try and integrate what the psyche is already producing, uh, rather than, uh, as it were, help someone to relive their de developmental history in order to become uh, more fully human. Um, he thought dreams speak in the language of symbols of transcendence, um, and they're not just the displacements of Freud. Freud had thought that um, the dream work is... Um, uh, he, he, he labeled certain, uh, a number of mechanisms he thought he observed, um, and one of them is displacements. Um, so, for example, I remember once having a dream um, where I dreamt that uh, the fences around our garden had got blown up into the air and were hanging from the trees. Um, and um, a Freudian way of understanding that would be to say that um, my defenses had got displaced onto the fences in my back garden, and I was feeling a bit under attack. Um, that would be a Freudian way of interpreting that dream. Jung thought that um, he might have thought that, uh, that fences were perhaps um, uh, the barriers that contained the sacred ground, the kind of temenos, and that um, when I dreamt of fences um, being swept away by a wind, a storm in the night, it wasn't my defences that were coming down, it was the wind of the spirit that was blowing and opening up a sacred ground for me that previously had been marked off by as it were, the walls of a temple. Um, now, I'm completely riffing on that. Um, I won't tell you what my dream meant. Um, but um, uh, you, you, get, you, get, you take the point about how um, uh, uh, dreams can be interpreted in different ways, um, whether you're thinking in, in a more Freudian way or a more Jungian way. And Jung was more inclined to look for more sort of archetypal, um, as it were, top-down, transcendent interpretations of dreams. Sometimes they're just everyday humdrum dreams. They're just like anxiety uh, or whatever it might be. You had a bad day and you've worried about it in your sleep. Um, but every so often, maybe, you know, sometimes people talk about bigger dreams, dreams that sort of stay with them. They feel like they have a kind of message um, that's not just about something, a detail in your life, uh, but maybe it feels like it's being pulled towards the future in some way. Um, these are things all to be discerned. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a, sort of an art. Jung would often tell people to go away for a couple of months and write down all their dreams and then come again and we'll have a look at what patterns are emerging, um, that kind of thing. Um, and then this idea about using amplification to work with your dreams. So that's partly about going into the dream again, seeing whether the images speak further. Um, it might be about doing some research um, and seeing how maybe in alchemical texts or in myth ancient Greek mythological stories or all sorts of resources, maybe even sort of Star Wars, um, you know, that these images which, which your mind is using um, are used um, in other contexts as well, and that you can understand something about what's going on in your own psyche by drawing in um, that wider use of these images and, and dynamics to amplify um, the dream, the bit as it were that you've seen to take it further. Um, and this um, relates to his notion of archetypal themes and images which he thought that we share just by virtue of our common humanity. Um, again, quite an everyday intuition at one level. You know, it seems a bit foolish to think that all of our experience comes out of um, just the rather small period of our infant lives, which is only like three years or something. Um, 
our experience really seems to exceed what would be possible to draw on in just three lives, in three, maybe in three lives, but maybe in three years. Um, uh, you know, language again would be something about that, would be an example of that, that, you know, language speaks us much, much more than we speak language. You know, I'm borrowing words left, right, and center. I haven't made up a single word today, I don't suppose. Um, uh, so, you know, our lives are much greater than just the one life, as it were, that we are actually living. Um, so archetypal themes and, and patterns and so on um, is his way of talking about that. Just to demystify it slightly, um, you know, birds are beginning to um, think about building their nests. Um, I don't suppose, I mean, I, sometimes I think birds do get taught how to build nests, but I think mostly it's instinctual. Um, and um, this would be a way of talking about it, that birds are kind of born with this kind of inner pattern or imprint, an archetype about how to build a nest, um, which means that they can do it. Um, Other people um, take on a kind of a role that's much bigger than themselves um, because they connect with different archetypes. I think Boris does this for, uh, in our culture. Um, you know, if you speak about Boris, um, my observation is that people broadly either hate him, love him, or a bit, mm, I don't really have much feelings about him, so let's see what he does. And I think that's because Boris is one of these characters um, that um, maybe through his own charisma, um, invites people to detect archetypes within him. Um, and some people see him, you know, as this kind of tricksterish character that can't really be trusted, um, whereas other people see him as this breath of fresh air, like a new spirit sweeping through politics that might help us to move forward. And then other people, again, don't quite get the archetypal resonance and just, just see him as like another politician, um, you know, who won the election. Let's see what he does. Um, they, they see him in a much uh, more sort of two-dimensional way, you might say. Um, uh, that's one way of understanding how people can have quite strong and quite different reactions to figures like, like Boris. Um, here's another experience uh, that I just saw recently. If you watch the Super Bowl and the, um, the, um, the halftime show um, with J-Lo and Shakara, isn't it? Thank yeah. you, Shakira. Show my age there. I know what J Lo, who J Lo is, but Shakira is a bit of a, uh, a revelation to me. Um, yeah. So, uh, and I, but I thought it was very, uh, very fascinating. I'm getting onto a dodgy ground here. Um, Freudian slips are pressing in. Um, they, you know, it was it was an amazing show, and and I watched it actually with uh, members of my family. We were across several generations, and. Uh, we were all not quite sure what we were watching, actually. Um, you know, was this just joyful celebration of feminine sexuality or was it really appropriate? And, you know, this was younger members of the family saying it. Um, and then, of course, J-Lo's, you know, quite old now um, and, uh, and yet looking, you know, amazing. I mean, but she's playing to it. Look, she has a walking stick. Um, you know, she's, she's playing to these, uh, to the, you know, with these images and these archetypes as well. Um, so, you know, but... The show was a massive success because, uh, you know, got everyone talking and I, I imagine will go down as one of the, um, you know, the, the best of the Super Bowl halftime shows. And because so brilliantly um, they played with, as it were, images which um, they channeled and brought very present and brought all their skill and their agility to do so. But nonetheless, it felt to me like they were channeling a whole lot more besides as well, um, which a great performer is able to do. Um, so I thought, um, yeah, oh, yeah, so, so I wanted to say also something about the shadow, this other archetype. 
Um, I've mentioned it already, um, but um, you know, a sort of basic approach to Jung and using Jung's ideas um, is going to be about doing what's sometimes called the shadow work. Um, and um, so this is broadly about um, learning to relate more successfully, more fluidly, uh, more lovingly, perhaps, towards the parts of yourself which um, you don't like. Um, you're inclined to project into others. Um, and um, Jung called this, it's quite a good example of an archetype too, because um, there's the archetype of the shadow, but it's going to be manifest in a myriad different forms depending on the individual concerned. So it, that's the sort of relationship between archetypes. Archetypes don't exist in, in sort of manifest forms, but they do um, give rise to manifest forms. Um, as it were, if you went sort of looking for the shadow um, in someone's mind, you'd never find it, but you could find out how the shadow is manifesting itself um, in their dislikes and what they try to avoid and the bits of themselves that have become rather split off. But it's worth doing the work, the shadow work, for two reasons. Partly because it means that you'll be nicer to others and have more capacity to welcome human beings in all their diverse forms um, and maybe get into fewer Twitter fights and so on. Um, it might make your life a bit easier. Um, but also because you're actually getting in touch with parts of yourself, so you'll become bigger, you'll have more energy, um, and life will grow for you too um, if you can uh, befriend the shadow. Um, so that's one of the reasons I think why um, this notion of the shadow has become quite big um, in, in modern times and doing the shadow. If you go on men's groups, for example, it's, a lot of it will be about connecting with your shadow um, and in other forms too. Now what's coming up next? So yeah, so this is a, to have a little bit of a talk and so on about archetypes. Um, this is a mirror, um, and I've just named a few of Jung's archetypes and there will be others. There's space there deliberately because there will be others. Um, but I want you to, again in pairs, just sort of go through some of these, these archetypes. Um, and I'll, I'll just talk about them a little bit more myself. And um, as you're talking about them, either explicitly or at least implicitly, feel which ones feel a bit more lively to you, a bit more important, that you feel a bit more drawn towards. Because the chances are that they're archetypes that you're quite um, identified with or you're invested with in some way. Now, again, there may not be any great um, uh, mystery here. Maybe that you are a parent, you know, so you're going to be drawn more to an archetypal parent. Um, it may be that um, you come across one um, archetype, like, say, marriage, that you don't like. You think marriage is a bad thing. Well, maybe there's something to discern. Um, I'm not saying you should get married, but nonetheless, you know, there's an energy there, you might say, that um, maybe marriage is in your shadow somehow for some reason. And so there's something that, if you could engage with it, you might be able to work it out. Um, let me just run through them so they're all clear. Um, archetypes can be not just, as it were, characters or individuals. They can be um, uh, motifs or dynamics. So, for example, creation, Jung says in various points, is an, is an archetype itself. You know, we human beings are called to be creative. Um, it gives us life. That's uh, the sign that it's an archetypal present. Um, uh, the animalistic um, side of us too um, is uh, another archetype. You know, when we feel bestial or um, just need to satisfy some animal urge. You know, we are animals too, you might say. Um, I think one that is very common now is the archetype of the deluge. The sense that something is coming down the line that's going to swamp us or overwhelm us, to flood us. Now, it's not to say that something won't, isn't coming down the line, 
but we tend to um, experience um, what we anticipate coming through the colour um, of old stories about deluge, you know, great floods or whatever it might be. Um, and it's worth just bearing in mind that the energy that I was, you know, if you're walking around Russell Square, you've seen there was a, an Extinction Rebellion protest going on. Um, and it's, I think when you're trying to work out how to relate yourself to Extinction Rebellion, um, and I know people in Extinction Rebellion do this themselves, you know, how much is an archetype of deluge or apocalypse and so on really driving things forward? And how much is it um, staying in touch with the reality of climate change? It's something to constantly try and adjust. Talked a bit about tricksters. Um, uh, death suits itself. The crone is the wise woman. You know, um, if you feel um, you get called upon as maybe a grandparent to be the sort of wise woman, maybe that's enjoyable, maybe it's not the crone. Devil speaks for itself, the child speaks for itself, God, shadow, union, initiation, another very powerful um, archetype of process, um, the, the sense of being challenged, something sort of breaking down a bit, as it were, but it's the precursor to a new birth, um, something new, life-expanding, um, a really powerful archetype. Birth, parent, the matriarch, the mother. The anima is the kind of female qualities inside you. The animus is the male qualities inside you, whether you're a man or a woman. The poor is the eternal child. Um, it's the kind of, you know, the Justin Timberlake quality inside you, you might say. Um, the maiden, um, the woman that wants to be independent. Um, the senex is the old man, father, separation, patriarch, teacher, opposites, monster. I hope they speak for themselves. And there will be others. There will be others. They're just to kind of set your imagination going. Now let's sort of, in the final few minutes, sort of take it um, a stage further. Because um, Jung was very interested in this. And... Let me, let me read this paragraph through and then um, uh, uh, discuss it a little bit. So here's from another uh, book that Jung wrote, or a lecture, I think this was. Um, he says, it will be clear from what I have said that this self is not just another more conscious or intensified ego, as the words self-conscious, self-satisfied, etc. might lead one to suppose. What is meant by the self is not only in me, but in all things, like the Atman, like Tao. It's a psychic totality. Now, when Jung uses this word self, um, it's actually often capitalised. Um, I should have really capitalised it here. Um, but um, for him, there's a difference between ego and self. Ego is, as it were, the bit that you're aware of, more or less, that you feel, you might be deluded, but you sort of feel more or less in control of. Um, it kind of gets you through. It's a bit a false, the ego's a bit like Winnicott's false self. But there's a, there's a much larger self, a capital S self, um, which in other traditions Jung here is saying might be called the Atman or might be called the Tao. Um, I think he, you know, he doesn't want to crash these things and say they're all the same. Um, the Atman and Tao are in a way quite different. You know, so the Atman in Indian philosophy would be um, the part of yourself that's able to connect with the Brahman, the kind of divine totality, the divine self, um, but you know immediately in yourself. Um, whereas the Tao um, is... Um, would be much more about um, the kind of, well, the way is another way it's often translated, the kind of dynamics of nature, you might say, um, but that you can feel in yourself. And so becoming aligned with the Tao is to become aligned with the dynamics of nature. So they can mean slightly different, they can mean different things at one level, but they're also the same because they're about trying to connect with the psychic totality. Um, and whilst different traditions have different nuances and different um, uh, inflections of this, um, they also have commonalities, Jung is saying. 
Um, it, it's a misunderstanding to accuse me of having invented an imminent God and therefore a substitute for God. So he was, he was accused, particularly, and he picked this up later in life, of just psychologizing notice, uh, ideas like God. Um, you know, it's just the sort of feature of the psyche. Um, there's nothing objective about it. But he's saying, no, 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 that, that's not so. He says, I am an empiricist. Um, he's interested in evidence and what actually happens, phenomena that happens in front of him. And as such, I can demonstrate empirically the existence of a totality superordinate to consciousness. In other words, our immediate consciousness is situated, he thought he could demonstrate it, within a wider, much wider consciousness. Conscious experiences this superordinate totality as something numinous, as a tremendum and fascinosum. So we know we're in contact, he thought, with this wider consciousness by these felt senses. I've talked about energy, but um, it has this sort of numinous quality, which might be frightening or might be quite appealing um, as something tremendous and fascinating. Um, he's, again, in the Romantic tradition, another, another word that's sometimes used to describe this is, is the sublime. And when something feels sublime, it's sort of beautiful, but sort of fearsome at the same time, because it draws you towards itself, but also is a life that's much bigger, perhaps, than yourself, and so also can be slightly intimidating. Um, he says, as an empiricist, I'm interested only in the experiential character of this totality. So when he's in empirical mode, he's interested in how people experience it, which in itself, ontologically considered, is indescribable. Um, this self never any takes time, any time takes the place of God, though it may some, perhaps be a vessel for divine grace. So um, he's talking here about this larger psychic totality um, may be an intermediary stage in itself, um, and so can become a vessel. It can take in, can contain and hold aspects of divine life. Um, but then we as the individual might experience, but there's still a divine life that's much wider and beyond it um, too. Um, it has its own life, you might say. It's transcendent as well as imminent would be another way of putting it. And then he, he, he makes quite an interesting comment um, which shows him up, is really very different from Freud. Um, he says, if I'm faced with this problem in analysis, i.e. when he's seeing a client, a patient, he, might, he may say, well, let's, see, let's wait and see what the dreams turn up or where the higher powers will intervene, perhaps through illness or death. In any case, don't decide now. You and I are not God. Um, so... Jung, particularly towards the end of his life, he was sort of free enough with these, uh, the, the widest ideas of transpersonal psychotherapy um, to say, really our task in psychotherapy is just to wait on these dynamics. After we've done the kind of groundwork, after we've got ourselves sort of sorted enough, we've achieved a kind of personal homeostasis or we've understood enough about our developmental pasts, not that it's all sorted, that it's all fixed, but we know we're going to be troubled by this. That's just what our life's going to be like. Um, or we know we're going to be drawn to this kind of thing too. That's what our life's going to be like. But we're not going to let our whole lives be dictated by what we dislike or, don't, or do like. Um, there's now plenty of space, you might say, in this phase um, to be in contact, to wait upon, to hear and listen for a life that may show up in dreams, um, that higher powers might intervene. Um, and maybe you know, we'll know that through something which um, in other times would be really not wanted at all, um, like illness or death. Um, but anyway, he says um, in this, this lecture, um, hold off deciding. Um, you or I, at the end of the day, are not in charge of our own lives, he felt. Um, you know, we're not, um, we, we were sort of thrown into life, as it were, and at some point we're going to be thrown out of life. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that we're just, as it were, dross um, on the surface of life, and that we're also invited um, to be able to perceive something of the wider life around us, however you'd like to conceive that. Um, but um, maybe at its greatest extent is um, the sense of divine life in some way or other. Um, I, I've thought about this uh, um, uh, quite a lot in terms of just this idea of I am. Um, and um, there is an I amness which is where we started today, which is the more um, omnipotent, demanding, sort of infantile I am, which has its side that's needed because it's about survival, it's about growing up, um, it's about moving on from vulnerable states. Um, then you might say there's a kind of midpoint I amness, which is about having my place in the world, um, where you know I am a father, or I am a teacher, or I am a this, I am a that, um, that gives you, as it were, your place in this life. Um, but I think there's also, I would say, there's also a kind of I amness, um, which um, you see reflected in different traditions. I've read this in, uh, particularly in Hindu traditions, Jewish traditions, and Christian traditions, where um, the reflection is that um, uh, we're called to identify our sense of ourselves, to be integrated enough, to have a sense of our particularity enough, so that that can become a kind of mirror um, or a channel um, through which we might be able to experience the divine I am. Um, uh, you know, so if you read teachings of Hindu yogis, for example, often it boils down to ask yourself who you are. You know, ask yourself, what is this I am? And it can take you through various phases where it seems to dissolve, um, but then it breaks open into a wider I amness, for example. And you get the same in Christian mysticism and in the Kabbalah as well. Um, the idea that um, the divine I am, because there's a much more overtly theistic notion there, um, that the divine, the, the, the cosmos, as it were, has a kind of personality of which our personalities can be reflections or echoes um, or channels making manifest. Um, and so I think that the reason why Christianity took off, for example, is that people felt that this one person had lived, um, Jesus, who they could experience, who they could see both a full human being, you know, this is a guy that dies, um, doesn't just, as it were, sail off into the sunset, goes through everything that human beings might feel, but nonetheless, at the same time, um, was felt to have been transmitting something more than just their own individual life. Um, and in a way, the more human they became, the more this divine sense of things seemed to uh, manifest itself as well. Um, the, in a strange way, the two kind of come together. And I think, you know, Jung, in his most mystical phases, was onto this. Um, I think this is something which is going to come more and more to the fore in Jungian circles because of the study of the Red Book, um, which was his personal kind of exploration of this, this aspect, his own personal uh, active imagination and amplification of this imaginal zone. Um, and people are realizing that this really was the source of all Jung's ideas. And whilst he tried to express them in different um, ways at different times in his life, sometimes in more developmental terms, sometimes um, in more mystical terms with his interest in alchemy and so on, um, that uh, he was trying to, as it were, reconnect us with um, the broadest possible notions of, of conscious life. And as Owen Barfield put it, um, maybe what Jung was on about was turning the collective unconscious into the collective conscious once more. So synchronicity is one of Jung's ideas. Um, and interest, interesting, he did try and develop it quite a lot with a, a physicist, um, Paul Dirac. 
Um, and Paul Dirac, if I got, have I got the right chat? Is it Paul Dirac? Pauli, sorry, Pauli. It's Wolfgang Pauli. I beg your pardon, thank you. Yeah, so Pauli was uh, um, very involved in the development of quantum physics, but was quite a troubled, troubled person. Uh, and he went into analysis with Jung, and um, particularly they worked on Pauli's dreams. And um, they wrote a book about it afterwards. You can read it. Um, and um, uh, Jung was very struck that um, his experience uh, in working with people and then in reflecting on his own life, that um, every so often or frequently, um, things would happen that um, seemed much more than coincidences. And the way he, he felt that they were more than coincidences is because they give you energy, they give you life, they open up new vistas, they make, enable something to shift, something changes. Um, so he argued that there must be more than just coincidences. Because if it was just a coincidence, you kind of go, ha, ha, and then you know, move on. Um, but he noticed that there's these synchronicities that, in some cases, um, set someone free even. One of the famous examples he talked about was he was working with um, someone who had a dream about a scarab beetle. And as they were talking about the dream, a scarab beetle flew through the window in that moment. And the dream sort of set her free as a result because she suddenly could feel the full force of what the dream meant um, that couldn't have happened if the scarab beetle had flown through the window, but also they just dismissed it as a coincidence. It wouldn't have released the energy too. Now, um, people speculate about what this might mean, how you might describe it in physics. Pauli was much more of the view that um, they were coincidences that you then project meaning onto. Um, so that would be the, another way of thinking about them. Um, but, I mean, you know, being personal about it, I've learned to trust synchronicities um, however, it might be they happen because um, when you, first of all, what happens is when you are open to them, they happen more frequently, um, which you might say it's just my delusion growing. Um, but um, uh, they feel like they're little hints and nudges that you're sort of roughly pointing in the right direction. Um, and uh, um, I don't know. I was, uh, 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 one recent one was... Um, I was a talk about um, Islam and spirituality, which is why I th thought of the divine names just now. Um, and the chap was talking about jinns. Um, and I was thinking, how oh, do I make jinns? What sense can I make of jinns that are kind of tricks the spirits? And, and when I left the, the gathering, um, uh, a moped went by with a kind of uh, delivery package on the back, and it was called Jinn Delivery. I've never seen one since or before. And I should Google, actually. I don't know whether they even exist. Um, but uh, I thought, oh... You know, I should take notice of what this day was about. It felt like a bit of a synchronicity, and it made me quite excited. You know, oh, good. I hope this has got something. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. Jung is quite often uh, keen to stress the phenomena, not to worry too much about, you know, what it might actually mean, um, but to, to, to... And again, this is quite a romantic idea. In the romantic tradition is that a bit like, you know, the way to understand a poem is really to let the poem speak to you, not to break it down and say, you know... This metaphor works because of this, that, and the other. But to let the energy speak to you, and, and Jung felt very similarly about psychotherapy. <laughs>